legacy has a really positive connotation, right? It's like, oh, you know, wealth and estates and trusts and all these other things. But really, legacy, yes, it's all that. And it's all your bad habits, all of your preconceived notions, all of your bad relationships, <laughs> your aunt that nobody likes, also part of your legacy now you have to deal with. So legacy, you don't realize when a generation's passing something down to the next, how much of the negative stuff is getting passed conjoined with the positive. We're not coming to this with a clean slate. And so part of what we're trying to do in our family is actually get to the bottom of it. And this is probably the bravest thing that a family could do working as a family or fourth generation to stop the madness, stop the stupid legacy that has gotten passed down with this great business so that what gets passed down to the fifth generation is highly valued, highly values driven and good. The word legacy tends to conjure up positive qualities, but legacy can also carry lots of emotional baggage, ones that you didn't originate or had anything to do with. But because you're part of the family enterprise, now is yours to carry, along with all the good things. Then, as leaders of family in business, how should you think about the long term and lead with purpose? How should you lead with your generation of family owners to choose what to carry on with and what to leave behind? Hi, my name is Esther Choi, the executive producer and your host of the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises' own podcast series, Family in Business, a podcast that features stories of leaders, their families, and the family enterprises they transformed. In the first episode with guest Chris Hershen, we've explored how one family figured out that owners don't have to always get along to have a shared purpose, and that if your family can create processes to overcome conflict and work together, you'll stand a great chance of perpetuating your family and your family enterprise. In this episode, we're going to hear the story of another family enterprise leader whose company operates in a more fluid, ever-changing landscape that is affected by a wide range of factors, such as international trades, geopolitics, and even the general population's career choices. And this space is manufacturing. Together with our show's advisor, Dr. Jennifer Penegas at the Kellogg's Award Center, and a new guest expert, Dave Wharton, CEO and founder of the Tuckbo Group, we are going to dive into Megan Juday's leadership story. Who's Megan? My name's Megan Juday. I'm chairman of the board at Ideal Industries. Ideal Industries is a 100% family-owned business. It's 105 years of operation, fifth generation of ownership, and we're a manufacturing company, and we make really products around the globe for tradesmen, essentially, is our core business, but we are in the electrical, lighting, and infrastructure space. The ideal purpose is, and, and really part of it is kind of leaving things better than the way you found it. <laughs> it's like 
the, the core definition of stewardship. I mean, this is a real stewardship process that family members are going through, and it is challenging. Which is like the ultimate goal of most family businesses is that I'm a steward of this. A lot of people will say, I don't own this. I'm just holding it for the next generation. That's Professor Jennifer Pendergast, Executive Director for Kellogg's Ward Center for Family Enterprises. We'll be hearing a lot more from her along with our other guest expert, Dave Wharton, in this episode. Stewardship is a big word and one that people in family businesses are probably familiar with. But what does stewardship really mean from a pragmatic level? And what does it mean to be a steward with purpose? while sorting out your family legacy. Megan's story will take us on a journey and help us explore our answers to those questions. Family businesses are, yes, you have to worry about today and this year, but you also have to worry about what's happening in the next 20 years, the next 50 years. And that's one of the responsibilities that family businesses have that public companies often don't share. And even politicians don't often share either because they have to worry about getting reelected and things like that. When you look today at the trades, the average age of most tradesmen is about 55 or 56. And that's with electricians, plumbers, contractors, HVAC, welders. There are not enough people going into the welding trades. Basically, you think about your home and all the people you need to help build your home and keep it running. And those people are retiring so much faster than new people are bringing in. So we sell primarily into the electrical trades. That's our core business. That's the one my great grandfather started. It's the brand that is also our name. And so we're very much focused on ensuring that we stay alive in the electrical space But you can't stay alive in the electrical space if you don't have enough electricians who will buy your products. (laughs) So I am not saying that all of what we are doing is just entirely altruistic. There is a motivation that we have to ensure that we have enough electricians to buy our products. So when you look at the overall economic impact of not being able to have enough trades, and this is tradespeople, even in the manufacturing space. So how much have you heard Biden talk about, and even Trump talking about reshoring, bringing businesses back into the United States, getting and securing our supply chain, which you know we've seen vast disruptions over the last 18 months that are likely going to continue for a while. And we are not going to be able to do that if you do not have people in the manufacturing trades and it will impinge all of our other objectives for, you know, reshoring, securing our supply chain, made in the USA. Can none of those efforts can be achieved without this kind of foundational piece, which seems to be you know, somewhat ignored. So what should be done? This is our fifth year of building a national competition for electricians. We get almost 70,000 people compete to try to come to this national competition. It gets broadcast on ESPN. People can win a year's salary, 70, 80, $90,000 from this if you win this competition. Plus you get like the fame and glory of being on ESPN and all your friends are making fun of you because you're now on a commercial. 
For context, ESPN is the multi-platform sport media juggernaut owned by the Disney Corporation. ESPN features all things sport competitions, including the Ideal Electrician National Championship Competition. It's actually a global event, and it's a chance to see who would be the best electricians every year, and that winners will get big cash prizes. We really wanted to do our part. We're a tiny drop in the ocean to this huge issue and problem that we're having nationally, but we're trying to show the public that the trades are sexy and that there are meaningful, real jobs. And we focus on highlighting women and minority competitors to try to just, you know, have other people see people that are like them on the TV screen being really excellent at what they do. We've formed a partnership with McKinsey to try to get other businesses who are doing their drop in the ocean to try to formulate a cohesive strategy to attracting and retaining people into the trades. There's conversations that have to occur in the political realm, in the, you know, high schools and community colleges. There are conversations that parents need to be able to have with their children. And if everyone who's doing their tiny little part and trying to attract more people into the trades, become a more united resource group, I think we can have a lot more impact and it one plus one will equal three. The thing that is sad about the trades is that these are real meaningful jobs. You can earn enough money to support your family. You don't have debt when you, you know, graduate from your apprenticeship. You are really can have this amazing, fulfilling life. You can work for somebody. You can own your own business. You can own your own conglomerate. I mean, there's just so much opportunity there. And you look at now what high schools are doing in terms of encouraging their students to only go to college and high schools are only measuring their success by how many of their students are going to college. But that's actually a false metric. They should be talking about who gets meaningful jobs and are able to pay off their college debt at a reasonable period of time, not how many people they're sending to college. The sad thing is that high schools used to have a lot more vocational programming in, and all those vocational programs have gone away, sadly. You know, I think they went away in the 80s, and now we're seeing the fruits of that decision. (laughs) We are going to be working with the existing schools and with the community colleges, which a lot of community colleges are moving to tuition-free programming and things like that. So that's the real project we're working on. It's meaningful work, and we have had some impact in attracting more electricians into the trades. But if we can partner with other firms and other initiatives that are doing this, I feel like we can have so much more impact. One good thing that's come out of this is that in the past, the focus has only been on electricians. This year, we're adding automotive techs. Next year, we're adding uh, welding and HVAC. So we are going to be expanding this and showcasing not only for the ideal nationals, but moving it also to a trades week to try to attract and retain to all the trades, not just the electrical trades. Here is a key thing to consider for family enterprises that are establishing their purpose. It is about creating a lasting impact for a long time, which is very different than non-family businesses. To stay in business for at least another 50 years, a part of ideal industry's purpose then becomes to promote 
the trades. Not only does their work has to involve promoting trades as a viable career choice for many, ideal industries also have to take the lead on working with multiple partners across public and private sectors to come up with creative solutions. Now, I know this might sound a little bit straightforward, and it is in a way, because once someone had already figured out a pathway forward, it always seems obvious. But the life of a family enterprise leader is multifaceted, and in Megan's case, what was she referring to in the beginning of this episode about her family legacy? Working as a family or fourth generation to stop the madness, stop the stupid legacy that has gotten passed down with this great business. And who is Megan Jude outside of her role as the chair of the board of Ideal Industries? What matters to her most? How does she allocate her time? And equally important, how does she allocate her energy? Although the word sustainable often gets applied to business strategy products, generally to things, here we'll soon find out why family enterprises need more leaders like Megan Jude, who leads with purpose that sustain them for a very long time. Why is that the case? We'll find out what all of that means when we come back. Welcome back to Family in Business, a podcast sponsored by Kellogg's John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises. The Ward Center is a premier academic institution that has provided executive education programs for family enterprise owners and leaders that build on a 20-year legacy of teaching experience, combined with the latest insight on how to achieve multi-generational continuity. So consider joining our 9,000 plus strong community by subscribing to our newsletter and receive monthly family enterprise news and insights. Just go to wartcenter.net and click on contact. It's really simple. It's wartcenter.net. Now, back to Megan Jude and Ideal Industries. We're going to take a momentary but necessary detour to define a few terms that get used interchangeably. My name is Dave Wharton, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Tugboat Group. And part of the Tugboat Group is uh, the Tugboat Institute, where I spend substantially all my time now. I've asked Dave to come on our show, and in particular this episode, because Dave spent a significant amount of time in the venture capital world with a glistening resume as well as being a successful serial entrepreneur himself. But even as he was riding on a rocket ship to Mars with his career, he also noticed that there's something major missing in the venture capital and private equity model, which ultimately led him to found the Tugboat Institute. Tugboat Institute is a member organization for the CEOs and presidents of Evergreen Companies. According to Dave, Evergreen Companies are those that embody seven characteristics that all start with the letter P. Guess what the first P is? Yes, 
purpose. With purpose being the first character of Evergreen Companies, I got curious. Every year since 2013, Dave has convened dozens upon dozens of Evergreen leaders who led their companies with purpose. So first, I have to ask him about definitions. I hear and use these words interchangeably. So, for example, how is purpose different from vision and mission? You know, it's interesting. If you do a web search, you get a lot of confusing answers on this. You know, people say, well, purpose and mission is the same thing. Purpose and vision is the same thing. And so I think that they are different and they're complementary. And I think probably the best way to do it is through example. And the example I've been thinking about this is, uh, I don't know Elon Musk, but let's try to think like Elon, at least as I understand he thinks. And with SpaceX, I believe... The purpose of SpaceX is to prevent a catastrophic event from ending mankind. If you really peel it back, he's nervous about that, whether it be an asteroid or a nuclear war, whatever it may be. But mankind has to survive outside of just our planet. And so that's his purpose. Now, what is his vision? I believe his vision is to have thousands of people living and thriving on Mars and other planets. So that's his vision for how to bring that purpose to life. And then his mission, at least his current mission, is to safely establish a long-term space colony on Mars. I think a modest one, but that is the current mission. We have to get there. We have to be able to establish life on Mars. And so purpose, protecting mankind, vision, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people living on other planets. And the current mission is let's get at least that initial colony on Mars. To paraphrase Dave's SpaceX example, vision is the eventual destination, even on a conceptual level. Mission is how do you go about reaching this destination, and purpose is why this vision is important. Or to put it even more simply, vision is the what, mission is the how, and purpose is the why. Having a clearer definition around how purpose differs from vision and mission is important because of two reasons. One, it helps us better organize these concepts mentally. Two, reason two has everything to do with how to sustain a leader of a family enterprise. We've already heard that Megan's family enterprise's purpose is to leave things better than the way they found it. It's all about stewardship. That's the purpose. That's the why that's important to the family. Now, the vision or the eventual destination is that more and more people are going into the trades business and leading productive and prosperous lives. They're not there yet, but they're going on this journey together to one day arrive at this vision. That's their what. Now, how are they going to get to their vision, this destination? So, for example, we reinvest 90% of the profits back into the business, which is pretty rare for a family business. Family businesses usually deploy more resources to the family. But our goal is to, with that reinvestment back into the business, you want family members to also be experiencing a good financial return, but a high emotional return. And so we spent a lot of time working with family members 
and sharing with them about our success as a company because of our values. And it's all around how we treat our employees, how our decision making gets impacted from keeping people employed during the pandemic. So a lot of it is just storytelling and having conversations. And that's what really needs to be done with the family um, in order for the family to feel that they're getting kind of a multifaceted return. It's not just financial. This example makes sense. Creating a good financial return for owners is a favorable thing, but generating a high emotional return for owners is also deemed important for Megan's family. In fact, more important than the financial ones. So showing owners how they're making a big impact in the world, even if owners aren't getting big dividends, then becomes a priority. But... What do you do when owners have a diverging sense of what the purpose should be? There's always going to be tension. And in fact, probably in that tension and the ensuing dialogues that occur is probably where you end up getting to the best place. And so I think that's where our conversations take us as a family is really trying to hold the tension and have the dialogue with divergent viewpoints to try to come up with something better than what either side, quote unquote, could have actually ever come up with. And I think the way that you handle it is trying to get to the point of being comfortable with holding the tension because it can be really challenging and it can be very distressing when you think you're making a values-based decision and another family is taking an opposite standpoint, also very values driven, and especially in the this current political climate where there's so much bifurcation, how do you not feel that someone having a unique viewpoint isn't betrayal? And so that's where we really are spending a lot of time as a family and trying to stay in that dialogue and have the conversation longer and probably longer than you think you might need to have in order to ensure that we are, as a family, coming to the best conclusion. Do you need an outsider to facilitate? How many of you are wrestling within a dialogue at a time? We have 50 family members, so your image of 50 people trying to duke it out in a room does seem fairly chaotic and pretty unproductive. And so we actually put up these little task forces in our family and try to build around, you know, hey, this is a critical issue we're trying to decide on. And we'll actually get into the family and try to get people who are kind of pro or con or, you know, opposing viewpoints and just to try to make sure that all the viewpoints are represented when we have the conversation. And the conversation is usually starts with, you know, doing a lot of research and having this task force become a subject matter expert. I mean, it's one thing to plant your foot on one side of an issue or another, but really you need to become educated about this. You need to know how other families dealt with this. What do the subject matter experts say? What does the literature say? And so you can become a, a mini expert in some of these spaces. And from that can kind of come up with a collective viewpoint. I need a specific example, a recent one, if possible. I'm very curious about holding the tension a little longer than you think you need to. Because normally what people would do is try to get past the tension as quickly as possible. Or even worse, pretend that the tension is not there. 
And to be quite honest, I think that's how the previous three generations have handled it. And that when you have three generations of avoided conflict, I think what happens, especially in a family business, is that those issues get condensed and they get kind of super saturated into the system because there's been no dialogue, there's been no blow off valve, there's been no release. If you think about a family business and a family sticking together for five generations, it's a pretty unnatural construct. I mean, most of us know three generations of families, right? And not three generations of everybody from the same offspring. You won't know your second cousins and third cousins, but you'll know those, you know, aunts and uncles, grandparents and cousins. And what happens in a family business, if you have multiple generations who have not dealt with conflict productively, think about legacy. Legacy has a really positive connotation, right? It's like, oh, you know, wealth and estates and trusts and all these other things. But really legacy, yes, it's all that. And it's all your bad habits, all of your preconceived notions, all of your bad relationships, (laughs) your aunt that nobody likes, also part of your legacy now you have to deal with. So legacy, you don't realize when a generation's passing something down to the next, how much of the negative stuff is getting passed conjoined with the positive. And so we have had to deal as a family with our fourth generation has had to deal with a lot of issues that really aren't ours. My grandmother didn't like her sister. And now uh, these aunts don't like my dad. And now some people don't like me. And we're not coming to this with a clean slate. And so part of what we're trying to do in our family is actually get to the bottom of it. And this is probably the bravest thing that a family could do is actually get into what we're doing. If I can, you know, promote the ideal family, but we've hired a family business therapist and we are working as a family or fourth generation to stop the madness, stop the stupid legacy that has gotten passed down with this great business so that it doesn't get passed down to the fifth generation. Families are like elephants. They have really long memories and they tend to be pretty judgmental and have a hard time often letting things go. Hurts that occur in prior generations are often perpetuated to future generations. I think families often need resets because there's baggage. There's bad things that have happened. People have treated each other not well. The ability for a family to reset to be able to say, yes, that happened in the past, but we're now going to choose to move on from that. And this is a new day. Jennifer's not her grandmother. We're going to allow people to have the space to just move forward from where we are and agree that we're going to let the past be in the past and acknowledge that it was hurtful and that I'm sorry that happened to you. So I'm not trying to erase it, but what I'm trying to do is choose to move forward beyond it, I think can be really productive and that that reset is super important. And what do you choose to keep and what do you choose to leave behind? And so, so much of what we've done over the last 18 months has been holding the tension, having the conversation, digging in, talking about your experience when you were a child growing up and my experience when I was a child growing up and really trying to take away all of the extraneous matter that has been negative and really tried to come to the fourth generation owning 
their own legacy and ensuring that what gets passed down to the fifth generation is highly valued, highly values driven and good. This all seemed like a brave, necessary, productive, but incredibly energy draining process. And that's just the legacy part, the family part that a multi-generational family in business need to process together. So how does Megan sustain herself as she leads her family enterprise? Welcome back. You probably know that Kellogg's Watch Center for Family Enterprises has been running many popular and in-demand executive education programs for over 20 years. But what you may not know is that you can contact us with your specific questions about any family enterprise challenges so we can identify resources to help you meet those challenges. Just write to us. The email address is familyenterprises at kellogg.northwestern.edu. That's familyenterprises at kellogg.northwestern.edu. The email is in our show notes as well. Now, back to Megan Jude. We can't expect to drive a car without gas or electricity, and we can't power a city without some sources of power. And similarly, a family enterprise leader can't expect herself to keep leading without somehow sustaining her personal energy. So how does Megan do it? I also have a passion project that I've been working on that kind of straddles the personal and the professional. And one of the interesting challenges that I've seen, and I've actually talked with a lot of other women who have become chairman as well, and they didn't realize growing up in their careers that they were unique. They were just a person contributing to a, the success of a company. And then they became chairman and realized they were the only one. Most women, female chairmen, have never met another female chairman of a privately owned company. And I became chairman last year, last February. Of course, I had like three good weeks before everything, you know, the pandemic hit and, you know, chaos reigned. And during that time, we were kind of six months into the pandemic and I realized how isolated and alone I felt. We all felt isolated and alone, right? We couldn't see our friends. We couldn't do our normal social things, no restaurants, no bars, and no grocery store even. I mean, so much of our life had changed. But on top of that, I didn't know any other women who had the job that I had. And that's crazy. Think about that. So I took the time to start talking to other people and trying to find other women who were in this same role as I was and ended up finding somebody. I spoke with her last quarter of last year, and I was so excited to have met somebody else. And at the end of it, I kind of jokingly said, hey, um, let's find a couple more women like us. We'll get together once a quarter. No big deal. And, you know, just chat because I feel like I have so much to learn from women who have taken on this role and, um, you know, dealt with some of the challenges that I've dealt with not because I'm a woman, but just because it's, I'm new in my job and I'd love to learn from other women. 
So I started this peer group. I now have 33 members and we have an incredible amount of enthusiasm and excitement around this peer group that I started. And we have, I mean, some really big names from big companies who have felt the same way that I felt, which is kind of lonely and isolated. And when you're one of the only, you always want to find others that are like you. And so this has been part of my journey is to try to connect other female uh, chairmen and vice chairmen of private companies to one another and then also really focus on excellence because in the end, it doesn't really matter if you're a man or a woman, you just have to be great. Megan turned what would have been a pretty lonely and isolated chairmanship journey into a thriving, growing tribe of female chairs of privately owned companies. And this tribe is called the Lotus Forum. And from the Lotus Forum, she's even branched out to podcasting called Women in Board Leadership. Not only she's helping herself, she's supporting other female leaders to achieve excellence. I wonder in the process of leading her family enterprise board, separating her generations from the baggage that got handed down, being a working mom, and probably a whole bunch of other civic and community responsibilities, what is one main lesson she can share? So my priorities are family first, and then I do, because that's like my core purpose. And then the Lotus Farm. My family, I find very energizing. Ideal is like 50-50. Sometimes it's really energizing. And in fact, normally it is. Obviously, this last 18 months have been pretty difficult. So a lot of energy draining. And doing this work with the family has been challenging just because we're like basically in therapy together. So I've been really looking to the Lotus Forum podcast, working with these women, working with family businesses is a real energy giver. It really is very, very fulfilling for me. And it's a way for me to come back to Ideal or to come back to my family with more energy than kind of what I put into it. But I have a lot of help. I have a lot of help around the house with Ideal. And I did actually have hired a podcast producer and a virtual admin, a social media person. So I've actually started outsourcing a lot because I think what I'm doing is important, but I don't need to do it all, right? This part really resonates with me personally. It's not just about delegation or time management, but it's also about paying attention to what's giving you energy and what's draining your energy. You probably don't always have a choice with doing things that are only energy giving, but you can most likely create a balanced mix of things that give and drain your energy. So that's one thing that I have learned that has really helped me to be, you know, more present with the children for, you know, my husband, making sure that I'm bringing kind of the best quality product to ideal and then ensuring that as we're working with the Lotus Worm, it's really gotten much larger than I thought it would. And so getting the help that I can there is, is really great, especially for people who are really busy. It's hard to take time in your life for yourself. But that's a key part of your purpose, right, to be self-caring as well as caring for others. And so I would say that 
I've always been into health and fitness, but as I've gotten older, it's been a, a larger core part of my my day and my week is taking time for myself so that I have time and ability and energy to care for others. That's really around being self-reflective and understanding what your capacity is and giving yourself time and space being a, a leader in a family business, because the people we're talking about are leaders, is any leadership job is challenging, but there's this additional emotionally intense and draining piece of it that can come on top of just the challenges of leadership that I think you just have to be mindful of in a family business context and learn what are the things that give you energy and what are the things that deplete your energy and make sure that you're keeping those in balance and the, the things that deplete your energy, you may not have a choice. You may still have to deal with those, but are you finding things that give you energy and do you give yourself permission to have the space to do some of those things that I think is important? Because also, you know, like leadership tenure in family businesses is a lot longer in non-families. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And in a marathon, Pacing yourself, taking care of your needs is just as important as you work on things like strides, speed, endurance, hydrations. Otherwise, stewardship is pretty impossible to uphold in the long run. But there's actually one more thing that's important in the long run that doesn't even have anything to do with Megan's family, her passion projects, or ideal industries. And so I have spent a lot of time, even professionally, through my work with Ideal, of not only trying to primarily keep Ideal and Ideal family intact, but also really trying to use that platform to help other family businesses be successful uh, with their transitions. And that's something that our family has taken on. We do a lot of work to help others. And I just think that if a family business fails or decides to sell, not even fail, if it just, I mean, selling can be successful, but if a family business sells to a non-family company, there's so much more that's lost than just the company itself. Even if the business is successful when it's being sold, there's still a lot of losses? Why? There's so much more that is lost in the community and the employees' lives in terms of the values and benefits that that family business is bringing to that community and employee population. And here's the other reason that Dave Wharton is our guest expert in this episode. It has everything to do with what he's found missing in the venture capital and private equity world. And in this world, the core model involves liquidity events based on favorable valuations for investor when the companies are sold. But Dave began to be aware of something else. I started being more aware of companies that were not interested in taking venture capital or private equity. They're not interested in going public someday, not interested in being sold, but they wanted to have a significant impact on the world. They wanted to make a big difference. Not little companies, not a lifestyle business. These, these someday could be multi-billion dollar companies, but they had chosen very consciously not to go on that de facto growth path because they felt they would not be able to, in a sense, control the outcome for their company. It could not achieve the vision that they had for that business if they had those type of financial partners. What does it mean to be building a company that's orthogonal to society's definition of success? Yeah, 
What does it mean to be building a company that is orthogonal to society's definition of success? Uh, wait a second. What does orthogonal mean? Uh, I actually had to look it up. Well, orthogonal has two definitions. One involves statistics, which I don't think was what Dave meant. The other definition is of involving the right angles. So to paraphrase Dave's excellent question, it would be, what does it mean to be building companies that intersect with society's definitions of success at the right angle? So what does it mean? It's not as complicated as it sounds. In fact, you have heard it many times before. So the concept of stakeholder theory would be that the corporation is responsible to a set of stakeholders and the board is responsible to ensure that management's keeping in mind these stakeholders. So those would be the community to not pollute, to do things like that. They would be customers to make sure that you're not deceiving them, that you have a good quality product, your employees, that you're treating them with care and fairly. Shareholders are one of a set of stakeholders. But there is this debate about whether you have a broader stakeholder perspective. And it was, I think it was the business roundtable a couple of years ago said we ought to have more of a stakeholder perspective. And there was a sort of, you know, writing manifesto of these set of CEOs that signed on to this notion that we should be, that then means you're better corporate citizens. In the end, it all circles back to if you take care of all the other stakeholders, that will also create shareholder value. All of this you've probably heard of before. It's what many publicly traded companies now are calling for ESG, environment, social responsibility, and governance. Or maybe you've heard of B Corp certified companies. Certified B corporations are businesses that meet the highest stands of verified social and environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability to balance profit and purpose. I think, you know, we get the luxury of talking to the best of the best too, right? The people that really care and the ones that have lasted that long. But I think a lot of them have sort of a B Corp mentality without going through the process. So I think of it in terms of governance as a board, who are you responsible to? Those of us in the family business community, on the one hand, laughed, and on the other hand, felt very validated that the perspective that the public companies were starting to take is a place that family businesses have always been. And I think they've always been because they're values-driven. I think they've always been practically because your name was on the door and you lived in the community where all your employees were. And businesses used to not be so global in their customer base. So if you were the local grocery store or whomever, you know, your customers were there too. You had to be accountable to all of them or you wouldn't have been successful as a business. But I also think families often care too that they want to be associated with something good and that they can use their business as a mechanism to play out their values. And now ESG is all the rage with public companies. And maybe that's why you guys are laughing. <laughs> exactly. Dave Wharton at Tugbo calls these companies another name, the evergreen companies. Each evergreen company has very, very long view, not based on quarterly or yearly performance or even by decades. An evergreen company's unit of measurement for its outlook is based on centuries. 
This is a company where the intention of the owners and the leaders is to have this business survive and thrive for 100 years or more. They could be 100 years old today, they're looking at another 100 years. They could be 10 years old today, and they're looking at 110 years. I mean, the timeframes in which they're thinking about are well beyond their own lives. And so in some ways, what they are is they're stewarding this company for a period of time before they have successor stewards. And those stewards are also part of that purpose and that value system. Whether you call them B Corp, Evergreen Companies, or in our context, we just call them family enterprises, they share these fundamental similarities. I have many dear friends in venture capital. They play by a different rule book than Evergreen Companies. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I do think the Evergreen Playbook is better for mankind and for society. Although Dave Wharton gave us an excellent example in SpaceX to help us understand the difference and complementary nature amongst complex terms like purpose, vision, and mission, the guest expert of our next episode, Dave Evans, a New York Times bestselling author, a design thinking expert, and a fellow veteran from Silicon Valley, doesn't even think that having a purpose is necessary or feasible. It will be so eye-opening to hear opposing views on purpose, so you definitely want to keep listening to the next episode of Family in Business. Thank you, Megan Jade, Chair of the Board of Ideal Industry. Also, thank you, Dave Wharton, Founder and CEO of the Tuckbo Group. By the way, if you've been enjoying listening to all the stories you've heard on our podcast, Family in Business, then please consider rating us and writing a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. It really helps others find us. Family in Business is a podcast sponsored by the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises. It is supported and advised by Professor Jennifer Penegast, Executive Director of Kellogg's Ward Center for Family Enterprises. Kane Power is our audio engineer. And I am Esther Choi, an adjunct lecturer at the Kellogg's Ward Center, founder of Leadership Story Lab, and author of the book, Let the Story Do the Work. (laughs) 